Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness to pray and to rest before he began his public ministry. This year during Lent, join Pastor Hook to pray and rest as we learn about our calling to be a life-changing connection to Christ in our world. We are in episode 7, which is day 7 of our 40-day journey through Lent. And what I'm trying to do through this is to take a look at various Bible verses and take an analysis of how the early church grew and how the early church positioned themselves to be the most powerful force in the Roman Empire and to take a look at our own situation at Christ Lutheran Vale to look at the fact that sometime either early summer, middle summer, late summer, we'll be completely out of this pandemic and in November, we are going to relaunch our congregation with new programs, new things, new, just all sorts of different things so that we can be effective at creating disciples or making loving disciples in our community so that we may be a life-changing connection to Christ in our world. So that's the, the reason why this is called a life-changing connection series, because we want to be a life-changing connection we want everybody in our congregation and our congregation and everybody in the church really to be a life-changing connection to Christ in the world. And so this is just a fun little study to take a look at various things to see what the early church did and are any of those good things uh, still applicable today? And if they are, let's, let's accommodate them and bring them into our picture. So that's kind of what we're doing uh, is, is basically spending time looking at that. So just as a recap... Last episode, yesterday, we looked at kind of two different models of making disciples. And I said the Peter model and the Paul model, and I might be stretching a little bit to call it the Peter model. I don't actually know for sure what the Peter model was because there's not a lot written about it. He did write a couple pastoral letters, and we do have some information in the book of Acts as far as how he went about doing what he wanted did. Um, but we do have an example of how Jesus made disciples. And the way that Jesus made disciples is that he gathered around him 12 men and he taught them for three years what it means to be a disciple and then he left them and then they, in turn, grew the church. That was how Jesus made disciples. Now, the great thing about that is that it's you do not need a whole lot. As a matter of fact, Jesus had nothing. He didn't have a computer. He didn't have the internet. Don't even know if he had a lot of money. Uh, he basically just took his 12 disciples and lived together and did life together for three years. And that is a great way to make disciples. If, if you have it in your ability to make disciples that way, you by all means, please do that. That is awesome. But there's another way to make disciples, and that's the way that Paul made disciples. If you remember, Paul went on missionary journeys all throughout, um, you know, modern-day Turkey and basically looked, he went into a village and he created organization and he created structure. He found people that were probably already living a life that God would be pleased with or that, you know, they were mature enough to be trusted with leadership or or whatever positions. So he assembled all these people together. He created congregations. Uh, he spent some time with them, and then he left. And then if you heard problems about the congregations, then he wrote these pastoral letters 
that Paul wrote back to churches such as in Corinth or in Ephesus or Rome. All these things, Paul wrote letters back to these churches to kind of give them further guidance. That's the way that Paul did it. And Paul created, man, he created structure. He created things like elders and deacons and bishops and overseers. And even in Ephesians 4, uh, beginning in verse 11, uh, we could even read that, where Paul writes, So Christ gave himself the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. Why? To equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity and faith in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So Paul recognized that, and, Paul, and this is because this is who Paul was. He recognized that different people had different gifts. And Jesus, of course, had all the gifts. Jesus was an apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, bishop, overseer, deacon, pastor. I mean, it was all of this stuff. So as he gathered 12 people together, it was very easy for him to teach them how to become disciples. But the rest of us live in sinful, uncompleted bodies, and we each have our own gifts. So when Paul went out, he basically leveraged everybody's gifts and pulled people together in a congregation to say, okay, your gift is here, you do these things. Your gift is here, you do these things. Your gift is here, you do these things. So you might ask yourself, like, which, which method is better? And I think, I think that pretty much the, Paul, the way Paul did it is certainly not a bad way to do it. I think if, if, the, if the governmental structure allows a church to exist, then they should come together and leverage everybody's gifts to create disciples. But you'll have to remember that in the early church, the early Christians were a forbidden religion, according to the Roman Empire. If you said you were a Christian and people found out about it, they would kill you. So the only way that they would be able to do discipleship was to come together in secret. They would come together in people's homes, and they would do all the things that they would do in people's homes. And that they did, and they were very, very successful. As a matter of fact, they were so successful, they took over the whole entire Roman Empire and then became a recognized religion in the Roman Empire, and then they became the preferred religion in the Roman Empire. And then the Roman Empire was around for a long time, for a thousand years or more, uh, doing the work of the church. So it's not a, ba- it's not a bad method at all. Of course, there is a danger, and the danger, of course, is that the church became so powerful and embedded with government that they lost sight of their original calling, which was to make disciples, and instead, they created a lot of legalism, they created a lot of uh, things to control people, because government always uses religion to control people. So if you have government in bed with religion, then then government controls the people through the power of religion, which is a very, very, very powerful thing. And it's not what Jesus originally intended. If you look at what Jesus said, he said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar and render to God that which is God. You got to keep at some level, you got to keep government and discipleship separated. When they're joined together, it, is, it can become very, very powerful, but then it can also become very, very corrupt, which is what 
caused the split in the East and the West in the Great Schism uh, of 1054, I think it was. And it's also what caused the Protestant Re Reformation in 1517 when, when uh, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis onto the church door in Wittenberg. I mean, you it, if you have the church in bed with, with the government, it, it does not go well. Which I think is why one of the reasons why the United States religion is so powerful and so robust. They will tell you that that uh, it's not, but I would say we are doing very, very well here in the United States, even though we've lost um, a lot of some of the structure of people going to church on Sunday morning. I still think by and large, we have a, we still follow the principles of Jesus here in our nation, uh, at least for the time being. So which is better? I think they're both I think they both have their role. If you can do it like Jesus, if you have people who are well-rounded enough like Jesus that they can take 12 people and turn them into disciples, you find 12 people that are willing to give up 3 years of their life to follow Jesus and then do it that way. That is an awesome method. But I think in in lieu of that, I think the organization of a church where you bring people together and create organization structure and all that, that's also very very good also. Um, and each has its advantages and disadvantages. I mean, the great thing about a church, right, is that you can you can pull people together and leverage their skill set to draw a crowd. Now, this is interesting. Um, Jesus drew a crowd. I don't know if you remember that, but Jesus did have disciples and he was teaching them. But there were times in his life where he started to teach. And he drew a crowd. As a matter of fact, I think I read somewhere there's like 37 times in Scripture where it says Jesus drew a crowd. I just looked up the ones in Matthew. And this is just the first part of Matthew. Matthew 8, 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart on the other side of the sea. Or Matthew 4, 25. Large crowds followed him from Galilee to the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea from beyond the Jordan. Matthew 8, 1. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds gathered him. Matthew 14, 13. Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. Matthew 19, 2. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Matthew 20, 29. And they were leaving, as they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. So Jesus was able to draw a crowd. And then Jesus was able to use that as an opportunity to teach. Now, did all these people become disciples? Well, we know one did, that after G Judas killed himself and they were one disciple short, they called Matthias, who had been with Jesus, but one of the crowd. And when the early church happened, this may have been the crowd, part of the crowd that was with the early church when they started in Acts chapter 2. So Jesus taught 12 disciples, but he was also laying the groundwork for future disciples by creating a crowd, by drawing people together and teaching them. It's a very important thing to think about because the one downside about just gathering 12 people around you and just doing that is you're not necessarily creating a momentum or an opportunity for other people to hear the teachings that are going on. 
And Jesus definitely, he did a lot of things in a small group of 12 guys, but there were times when he taught in a large crowd. And some of his most amazing teachers, teachings like the Beatitudes are from a crowd. So let's just take a look at how the early church kind of grew. And um, the best way to do that is to go into Acts chapter 2, where we have Pentecost. Uh, The early disciples and followers of Jesus were gathered together. The Holy Spirit came down. It was like tongues on fire on their head. And, And the Spirit breathed into them like a dove, and the church began. I mean, that's a lot of people point to this Acts chapter 2 verse 1 as the beginning of the church because the Holy Spirit came in a very real and powerful way and um, and the church began. It was like the birth of the church. But then what happened after that? Well, let's take a look at Acts 2 beginning of verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Now, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So there had been a crowd gathered, and the Holy Spirit comes, but Peter uses this opportunity to preach, to teach as Jesus did. And he talked about, in in Peter's sermon, he talks about how Jesus is the promised Messiah and how that was demonstrated by the, all the miracles that he did when he walked around. And then he told the crowd, he says, but you killed him. It was, remember, these are Jewish people. But, and there were people in this crowd who said, crucify him, crucify him. He says, you killed him. He came, he did all these miracles. He said that he was the promised Messiah and you killed him. But then God raised him from the dead. And that was foretold by, by David. And when the people realized that, you know, man, this truly was the Messiah. And yes, I was part of killing him. And yes, he did raise from the dead. All of this is true. Then what happened? Well, let's take a look. We'll continue reading in verse 36. Therefore, let all of Israel be sure of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. By the way, just as a teaching moment here, what happened when they were baptized? They got forgiveness of sins and they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness of sins, receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. We will get into this later on in our 40-day Lenten journey, but just pointing out that right here, the very first kind of group baptism was repentance uh, followed by forgiveness of sins and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, We'll continue on. The promise is for you and your children and all for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Verse 40, with many other words, he warned them, he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted Peter's message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So Peter gives this sermon. He cuts him to the heart, and they're baptized, and 3,000 people are added to their number that day. That is a lot of people. Now, did all these people become followers of Jesus Christ? Did all of these people 
um, spend the next three years of their life learning about Jesus. Eh, the Bible doesn't really say what happened to all 3,000 of them, but it does talk right after this about how at least some of them did life together. And it's in Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. This crowd, these people, these 3,000, or at least some of them, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. This is a beautiful depiction of the early church. Now, you have to remember, at this point, there was no structure whatsoever. This is definitely kind of following the Jesus model. First of all, Paul is not yet on the scene, and Paul notices these early Christians and starts to persecute these early Christians. But they had no, there was, there was nothing that was, that's given here that they that was any sort of leadership type of thing or uh, or structure or organization at all at this point. It was just a group of Christians gathering together. What did they do? Well, they they listened to the apostles' teaching. They had fellowship together. They broke bread together. Now, this breaking of bread in the early church, and we'll get into this, but in the early church, since they didn't have worship services, the breaking of bread early on was mostly coming together for a meal, as Jesus did, the Passover meal. And then in the middle of that meal, they would have a remembrance, communion, breaking of bread, remembering Jesus. So it wasn't necessarily in Sunday morning worship service. It was, it was a part of the meal that probably happened later in the evening after everybody worked because people worked seven days a week. They came together for a meal, and then in the middle of that meal, they broke bread. So they... Apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. They prayed for each other. They, they asked, what can you be healed for? And then they prayed over each other, and they prayed with each other, and they prayed for the community around them. And then, they, then it says that they gathered their resources and gave it to anyone who had need. So they, they really did spend a, an incredible amount of sacrifice of their own lives to love the world around them. That is, that is what they did. And, and many, many, many historians talked about the plagues that happened in Rome at the time the early church was there. And while most people were fleeing Rome because of the plague, hello, plague, the Christians gave of themselves, actually went into Rome and healed the hurting, not, you know, in some instances, I suppose there could have been some healing, but most of part, they, they just gave love and compassion and concern to the people that were in Rome. And at the risk of their own life, they did that. Then that so this is even before Paul created organization and structure. The, just, the Christians just came together and they did these things. And and the and the Lord added daily to the number of the people that were being saved. So whatever it was that they were doing, they uh, they the Lord was adding to their number daily. So the early church. Um, you know, kind of had some marks also. They did draw a crowd. Peter drew a crowd. And I think that 
people noticed the early church. So they, the, at some level, some of these teachings, they drew people in. There was something about it that was magnetic that drew people in. They gathered into small groups. Uh, you know, they, right now they're in one group, but they probably, you know, the church at some point, they said, let's gather into house churches. And they developed these things called house churches. And so all throughout Jerusalem, they they gathered together and Typically, if uh, if the one of the person in the group was wealthy or had a large house, they would go and they would meet there, and they would use one of the rooms of their large house as kind of like a church. They taught, they prayed together, they had fellowship, they broke bread together, and they learned how to serve the community together. That's kind of how the early church operated. And so you have to ask, you know, we have to ask ourselves, what, what, how do we reach our community? And a couple things. One is, somehow, it would be great to draw a crowd. And there, in, in the history of Christianity, they did draw a crowd. They built these cathedrals. And people would be drawn to these cathedrals because people are always drawn to large crowds, right? I mean, you do it yourself. <laughs> you, see, you see a group of people, you, you know, standing around, pointing or standing around in a group, and you, you are at least curious, like, what the heck is happening here? So a crowd is a very, very powerful technique because it, it digs deep down into a human thing characteristic, a human trait, which is we just have to see what a crowd is all about. There's nothing wrong with a crowd. And Peter used that crowd at Pentecost to preach a message about Jesus, and 3,000 people came because of that. So there's nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, Billy Graham noticed this. Uh, that's why he did all his crusades, because you have a crusade coming into your community, and everybody wants to drop everything they're doing and go be a part of the crusade. And then the, the way that Billy Graham did it was that he would then activate churches to say, okay, I'm bringing the crowd uh, we might even have people that are going to be baptized like this uh, that want to follow Jesus, but it's up to you churches to organize these people into groups and figure out how you can continue to disciple them. I haven't seen a, I've not seen, I did go to a Billy Graham crusade when I was a kid, but I have not seen a crusade like in Tucson in a long time. And I've wondered to myself, is it is it time that we do another crusade? Or would people just like our community around us is not, would not come to a crusade. It's not anything that our community resonates with. And the reason, of course, is because for whatever reason, for the last hundred years, the church has been losing influence in our society. And I would say even now, for people who are, I would say, maybe 30 and younger, for that those group of people, they're extremely skeptical about the church. They're not sure the church teaches the message of Jesus. Um, they think that the church is all about power and influence and money. And even though we're not tightly, closely aligned with government, they feel as if we, we're using our power in the church to, to form government, to, to get into that power structure of government. We're also seeing here in the United States that more and more of the power and influence is rising to the top. And so very, very limited number of people make all the decisions for the United States. They control everything in the United States. Uh, the United States Constitution was designed to prevent this. And, uh, and so it's slow. 
But I think what I see when I look around in the United States is I see I don't see. Um, I, I guess what I see is that, and, and it's of course only natural that our two main political part, parties, you know, they they're all about power and influence so that they can have control over the society that they're you know elected to govern, and um, and so there is still even today, you know, all this power and influence going to the top. And when the church aligns itself with that power and influence at the top, the people who are kind of 30 years or younger, they, they do not think that that is the, they're smart people. They, don't, they, they know that Jesus said, you know, render to Caesar that which is says, read Caesar's, but render to God that which is God. Don't get into bed with the powerful, influential people because that's not what Jesus was all about. Um, now, at some level, there's nothing wrong with that uh, because the church is doing as best as we can. We're sinful people. We, you know, we're trying to do as best as we can. We see things that need to be legislated, and, and in order to do that, we have to take notice, and so you know all those sort of things. But I'm just saying that uh, in the context of this particular lesson, um, if the church is losing influence as an organization, as a structure to draw a crowd then it might be that what we need to do is to move more into the Jesus model, to raise up leadership who are fully committed to to Jesus and are willing to spend a vast majority of their time learning about that and then taking that message of Jesus out into the world aside from the structure of the church. I don't know. I just don't know the answer to that. All I know is that the, the one thing that comes clear out of all of this is that there is no set way to make disciples. And for the last 500 years, the church has done very well by creating an organizational structure that says we get our weekends off, and on one of the days of those weekends, we're going to spend a a devout amount of time praising God and, and doing these things, coming together for the apostles' teaching, breaking a bread fellowship and prayer, and serving the community. That's kind of going to be our Sunday thing. And um, that's how the church has done it for the last 500 years. But now we're, we're around a society again, as it was in the early church, where people are working 24-7. There are people literally working right, you know, on a Sunday morning, they're working in Walmart and working at the food stores and all, you know, in the restaurants and all that sort of thing, because that's what our society demands because of profits and we don't live in a society anymore where everything shuts down on Sunday and we all come together on a Sunday to worship and praise God uh, and to learn, to teach and have fellowship and breaking of bread. So because we live in a 24-7 society, the church in making disciples really needs to think about the fact that we need to become at some level a 24-7 church. And we have to modify some of the things that we do because the old model of everybody coming together on Sunday is is fading away. And while it is a great model and I love the model and I wish that everybody would follow that model, um, I wish I could be a choir director back as I was in Colorado singing you know, Bach chorales with my uh, shepherd's chorale. Um, it's just that is not... First of all, the Shepherd's Chorale doesn't draw a crowd anymore like it used to. Uh, you know, 100 years ago, a choir singing would draw a crowd just because it was so cool. Uh, today, you pull teeth trying to get people in a choir. 
Um, it's just not where our world is today. And we have to take an honest view of where our world is today to figure out what is the most effective way of making disciples today. And um, so I think we'll leave it there and we'll pick up on this topic a little bit tomorrow. So uh, thank you so much for joining me. Let's just uh, close in prayer. Dear Jesus, continue to give us wisdom from your word to figure out how we can follow you to follow your great commission. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.